Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for our time this morning, uh, once again, to gather with your people, even as Christians are gathering throughout the world in local churches to worship you today. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of that assembly, that great assembly of Jesus Christ, saved through his blood and uh, rescued and given new life through his resurrection. We long for the day when he will return to take us to be with himself and make all things new. But in the meantime, Lord, we know that he has sent us into the world uh, to make disciples of all nations. We know that we ourselves are among those ransom from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And uh, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the many blessings that you've lavished on us in Christ, even as Paul described them as unsearchable riches of Christ. We thank you and we do worship you. Even this morning, we, we begin to focus our hearts upon you and we want to sit under the teaching of your word. And as we turn to the subject of studying the Old Testament scriptures, we pray that you would open them up to us. We think of how the Apostle Paul described them as God-breathed and profitable for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. So we pray that you would use your word this morning to, first of all, give us a deeper knowledge of you, but also to equip us for a life of following Jesus. And so we pray even as we turn this morning to the book of Exodus that you would enrich our souls, nourish and strengthen us spiritually through it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're continuing our study, the overview of the Old Testament. This is where we're at, and you can see kind of where we're at in the broader scope of the class. Most of the time, we're going to tackle one book per class, but some we will, ta- we will tackle more than one book. And don't forget that this year, Sunday, Christmas, and New Year's both fall on a Sunday, so we won't have class those two. We won't have a, we'll have a service, but not a class those two Sundays. All right, let's uh, dive in. We've got a lot to cover today, so I'm going to try to move through at least this initial portion more quickly. But please stop if you have any questions along the way. I'm happy to pause and answer. And we want to talk first about the author of Exodus. And of course, Exodus is part two of a larger book. We call it the Pentateuch. What does Pentateuch mean again? First five. Five books, or, and it refers to the first five books of the Bible. So Exodus is part two in that. It's clearly continuing, picking up and continuing the story that was begun in the book of Genesis. In fact, the first Hebrew word of the book of Exodus is and. So there's, from the very beginning, you see it's picking up the story that was left off. And if you read the first few verses of Exodus, in fact, I would encourage you to turn to Exodus 1. And if you just glance, you'll see that it's picking up with Joseph and with uh, the Israelites in Egypt after Joseph's death. And so, clearly continuity with the book of Genesis. This isn't just some detached story. Uh, and that means that like the other books in the, the Pentateuch, it's, it's written by or attributed to Moses for the most part. We talked about how there might be parts of it that are written by other people with some light editing that happened. But for the most part, the material in those first five books is attributed to Moses. And you can see that throughout the New Testament as we talked about. Jesus, for instance, would just refer to it as Moses, the first five books. Or it would sometimes be called the Law of Moses. 
Now, if you look in the Pentateuch, you can actually see very clearly that it often referred to Moses writing things down. So if uh, you want to just, you don't necessarily have to flip here, but I'll just reference a few verses where you see this. Exodus seventeen fourteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Later on, Exodus 24, verse 4, a similar thing. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then if you go to Exodus 34, another well-known chapter, uh, verses 27 through 29, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So it was. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So there are multiple places in the book itself where you see that it's telling us that Moses, as he received revelation from the Lord in this climactic sort of incident where he met with the Lord on Mount Sinai, he was writing things in a book. And so you can imagine this growing book, right, where Moses had written down content. And it is this content that we have in part in the book of Exodus. So it's attributed to Moses as its author. Now let's move to the date. And we've already talked about the date of the Pentateuch, but it is interesting that when you talk about the date of these first five books, which are attributed to Moses, we have to ask the question, when would that have taken place? And the date of the Pentateuch is going to be intimately tied with this great event, which our book, the title of our book, refers to it, this event of the Exodus. When did the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt occur? And scholars, as you can see, have, there's sort of a traditional dating that went on, and that is what you call the later date. Later date being further out or further back in history. Uh, And then their modern scholars have opted more frequently for an earlier date. In other words, closer to our time today. And let me just tell you why. The later date, the date of the Pentateuch, being tied to the date of the Exodus, when we look at when when did the Exodus happen, there's actually uh, a text in Scripture, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. In fact, let's turn there. If you would, keep your thumb in Exodus. But 1 Kings, 1 Kings 6. It says, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, when it, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, what this does is it tells us the date of Solomon's fourth year in, as king relative to the Exodus. And so it actually tells you that, it, that Solomon's fourth year in office, as it were, occurred 480 years after the Exodus. So the interesting thing about that is we, have, we can clearly date Solomon's reign and we can, we can know with relative certainty when his fourth year in office was that it was about that it was 967 BC 
Well, if that's the case, well, then you could, according to 1 Kings 6, 1 and following, 1, you could trace back the actual date of the Exodus, according to 1 Kings 6, would have been 1447. Now, there might be some quibbling with the exact date, depending on how, you know, the, the various reigns of the kings of Judah and Israel are, are dated, but generally this a 15th century uh, in the 1400s date for the Exodus is what is the traditional date that, um, you know, scholars that believe that the scriptures are the inspired and inerrant word of God uh, would be satisfied with. Now, what's happened is that what's happened is that modern scholars, for the most part, have rejected a 15th century date for the Exodus. And the reason why is that they claim that it doesn't fit the archaeological evidence. So there have been, for instance, claims that certain archaeological sites correspond with uh, cities that are mentioned in the Bible, particularly in Egypt. And then they dig on those sites and they say there's no record of these figures living at, this, at these archaeological layers or whatnot. There's no evidence at these sites that the things described in the Bible could have occurred, and so they opt for an earlier date. But of course, the issue is, and oh, and this is typically what they'll do is they'll push the Exodus up a couple centuries. Usually it's the 13th century, but sometimes they'll push it back to the 12th or the 11th. Of course, the issue is, and this is true with a lot of archaeology, is that a lot of times it is not certain that the sites that they're digging on actually are the sites identified in the scripture. And so what happens is that over time in the discipline of archaeology, new things will be discovered and they'll go, oh. So this is a recurring phenomenon. For instance, there we've talked about this before, but there's been a lot of things that archaeologists have said, well, the Bible can't be true because it says this, and but what we find in but what we found in um, archaeological evidence doesn't, doesn't reflect that. And then they'll realize they were digging on the wrong site, or they didn't realize that this ruler actually had two names, or they all of a sudden dig up a name, uh, a, a something, a piece of pottery with the name of someone that they, that's mentioned in the Bible that they'd never seen before or whatnot. And so the discipline of archaeology is always discovering new things. It's always changing. For instance, I, I think I might have mentioned this before, but there's been a whole story about the discovery of biblical Sodom, where for a long time they assumed that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah couldn't have been accurate because they had a particular site they were digging on that they believed was biblical Sodom, and it didn't reflect the destruction layer, uh, destruction at the period, especially at the period of time that would have corresponded with the destruction of Sodom. And so they said, well, it can't be accurate. And then they discovered that there was actually another site that was actually in the place that the Bible said Sodom would be. And as they dug down to the appropriate layer, they discovered evidence of massive destruction of the whole city. And they go, oh, this, this must have been biblical Sodom. Everything corresponded with it. So you can see how the interpretation of archaeological evidence is not a certain discipline. And so, tip, you know, if a... Scholars come along and they say, well, this can't be right because of the archaeological evidence. It's, this is why you know, evangelical scholars had tended to say, well, 
archaeological, the ar- discipline of archaeology is not certain. And so if the Bible says that this is when the Exodus occurs, we're going to go with that above the ever-changing and often mistaken findings or interpretations of the archaeological evidence. Okay, so that's something of the date of the, of the Exodus. If you're interested in, in that, I can, always, I can point you to resources that you can look at more closely on this, but this is sort of just an overview. So this would tell you then about when, you know, the Exodus, if it occurred here, then the period of 40-year wilderness wandering and when Moses was leading Israel would have been about these dates. This would have been about the time that he was writing the material that we find in the Pentateuch. Okay, so 15th century BC, a very ancient document. It's difficult. I mean, this is 35, almost 3,500 years before what we're living in today. So it's difficult to think about a document that ancient being preserved so, so well over the centuries. But this is about the date that the, that the book of Exodus would have been written, corresponding to the date of the Exodus. Any questions on this? Any questions? Okay. Okay, so I want to uh, look at the structure of Exodus. I'm actually going to pull all three of these up here at once. If you were to sort of be able to look, open up and put all the pages of Exodus out in order, and you just sort of look, you know, you read through them, and you could see the sort of way that it, that it fell out, its structure, this is what you would find. The first 18 chapters are devoted to this event that we call the Exodus, where the Lord delivers Israel out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai. And then the next section of the book, Exodus 19 through 24, this has to do with the covenant. So you remember the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai, speaks to the nation of Israel from the mountain, gives them his law, the Ten Commandments. He actually speaks the Ten Commandments to them in Exodus 20 from the mountain. They're terrified, etc. And then he gives them more of his law. And then the covenant is ratified in Chapter 24, with sacrifices, the blood of sacrifice sprinkled on the tablets and sprinkled on on the nation to symbolize this covenant union. And then when you get to Exodus 25 through 40, there's lots of things that occur in there, but mostly it centers around the tabernacle. So you remember, I've often thought how difficult it would be to preach through the book of Exodus because... You have like six chapters where you have all the instructions, detailed instructions of how to build the tabernacle. And then you have some things happen, the golden calf, etc. But then you have a detailed description of how they built the tabernacle according to the instructions. So it's almost like this section here is almost an exact repeat of the earlier sections, instructions and then a building. So, you know... Here God says, this is what you do, and here it just says, and, and they did this, and they just follow through in detail all the instructions. So you can see that at the center of this second section of the major section of the book is the tabernacle, how to build it, its instructions, and, and then its execution of building it. So that when you get to the end of the book, the glory cloud of the Lord descends and fills the tabernacle. So that's where the book ends. So this is the sort of general breakdown of the book. The Exodus, 1 through 18, the Covenant, 19 through 24, the Tabernacle, 25 through 40. All right, so any any questions here? We're tracking. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to focus, zoom in a little more closely on each of those three sections. And this is where I'd actually encourage you to 
open up your book, your Bible, to the first chapter of Exodus, and it would be helpful if you just sort of followed along. You could flip pages and just look at your headings and just sort of get a sense of, okay, I see, I see what Jeremy's talking about here. It is amazing. It just gives you a sense, too, of how massive the nation was. I mean, this is one of the things that scholars have sort of balked at the historicity of the Pentateuch because the numbers, the sheer numbers that it gives, you know, list the fighting men, 600,000. So if that's just the fighting men of age, what would the numbers be? I mean, we're talking in the millions and in that part of the world and at that time in history, it's it's difficult to fa- to wrap your mind around a nation of that size tromping around the Sinai wilderness. But the Bible goes out of its way to tell you that that's what it was. Everything from how Pharaoh reacted to the way that they were multiplying, uh, he was terrified of them, to the, the continual emphasis upon how many people there were. And of course, this goes back to the old promise, I'll make your descendants like stars in the heaven, the sand and the sea, right? Okay, so here we have the Exodus, this first part, 1 through 18, the Lord delivers Israel out of Egypt and brings them to Sinai. So in chapter 1, if you look there, you'll see that it really lays out the problem that made the Exodus necessary, and that was picking up at the end of the book of Genesis when they had gone down to Egypt in Joseph's days, that hundreds of years later, Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph, and he begins oppressing the Israelites because of how numerous they had become. And then chapter 2, we have a brief history of Moses, his birth, etc., and how he came to live in Pharaoh's house. And then chapters 3 and 4, you have Moses' call and commission, the burning bush, etc., and God telling him, calling him to lead the Israelites out. And then if when you get to chapters 5 through 12, that's when you have the great conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, the famous, let my people go, and Pharaoh's heart being hardened, the ten plagues, and then finally, in chapter 12, the, the actual exodus of Israel out of Egypt after the tenth plague, and you have a whole chapter designated to describing the institution of the Passover, which commemorated that night that Israel was delivered. And then when you get to chapters 13 through 15, you have the beginning of their wilderness journey. Uh, or sorry, you have uh, the account of the Red Sea. God leads Israel by a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, a fire by night. He leads them through to the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea before him. And when they come through, he causes Pharaoh's army to perish in the Red Sea. And then, of course, in chapter 15, you have that song, what's called the Song of Moses, where Miriam leads the people in singing song of praise to God for his deliverance. It's interesting that Song of Moses reappears uh, again in Scripture, particularly in the book of Revelation, describing the final sort of deliverance of God's people out of the world. It's a sort of quintessential song commemorating, praising God for his redemption, his great redemption. And then when you get to chapter 15 through 18, you have the beginning of Israel's wilderness journey, the, the initial grumblings, you know, they've just been delivered in these remarkable ways. They begin complaining about their hardships in the desert. And that's when the Lord provides first manna from heaven and water from the rock. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai. And that's sort of where we leave in this fir- leave off in this first section of the book. And you can kind of hopefully have seen as you follow through in your own Bibles, you can see how that falls out. And then the second part. 
Exodus 19 through 24. This centers around the great covenant that God enters into with Israel, sometimes called the Mosaic covenant, sometimes called the Sinai covenant, sometimes called the Old Covenant in Scripture. This is the covenant that's going to shape the rest of Old Testament Scripture, all the way from Genesis to Malachi. These are covenant documents where this old covenant, this covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel sort of is the central theme that ties it all together. Everything after this is going to refer back to this covenant that God makes with Israel at Mount Sinai. And you can see in uh, just a, a note here, Israel remains at Mount Sinai for two years. And so In terms of the Pentateuch, that takes you from Exodus 19 all the way through Numbers 10-11. So until you get to Numbers 10-11, that's when they finally leave Mount Sinai. So this section of the Pentateuch, Exodus 19 through Numbers 11, that entire section uh, takes place at Mount Sinai, right? And so that just gives you a sense of how big of a deal this particular incident was. Chapter 19, this is where you have the Lord descending in the cloud onto Mount Sinai. And there's thunder and trumpets and lightning and a thick cloud. So verse 16, on the morning of the third day, 1916, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Right, So there's this meeting. God descends upon the mountain like a, like a mountainous tabernacle. Right, And then the people come to the foot of the mountain. And this, if you haven't realized it, you, know, you say... Your, your children, you might teach your children, where in the Bible are the Ten Commandments? And they, if they've been well taught, they'll say, Exodus chapter 20. And there's other passages too, but this is sort of the classic passage with the Ten Commandments. But did you realize that Exodus 20, when it says, and God spoke all these words, this is the context, right? Where did he speak the words from? Out of the fiery cloud with thunders and lightnings and trumpet blasts. And the people have gathered to the mountain and they're trembling in his presence. And he speaks the ten words to them from the mountain, right? So this is a meeting between God and the nation of Israel. The two parties in this covenant. And God is now speaking to them the terms of the covenant. The ten words that summarize the stipulations that he's placing upon his covenant people that will will summarize their obligations to him as their covenant God, right? And so he speaks the ten commandments uh, to them from Mount Sinai. And this is the first part of chapter 20. And then... When you get to the ten, through the Ten Commandments, you see all kinds of other laws, right? What do your headings say? Laws about altars, laws about slaves, right? Laws about restitution, etc., etc. Laws about justice in society, on and on down, and about Sabbath and festivals. So you have a, a, the Ten Commandments, and then you have an expansion. Now, by the way, like it says, laws about Sabbath and festivals. Was there anything in the Ten Commandments about the Sabbath? Yes. Right? The fourth commandment, right? So, 
And and the same when you look at the the other laws, you see that there are that's a kind of a um a theme throughout. It's like chapter twenty three verse one says, "You shall not spread a false report." It begins to expand upon that. Well, is there anything in the Ten Commandments about a false report, right? false witness? Not? Yeah. So on and on down, you see that that what is happening is you have a summary of the terms of the covenant and the ten words, the ten commandments, and then you have an expansion of the ten commandments in the the subsequent body of legislation, right? Where it's unpacking in greater detail what it would be like to you sh- to you shall not murder or you shall not steal or you shall not bear false witness. How does this flesh out in your life as a nation, right? Okay, and then you get to the the last chapter in the section, chapter twenty four, and you have. It says, your heading probably says the covenant confirmed, confirmed, right? And you have this ceremony where there is sacrifices made. And verse 7, or verse 6, it says, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the blood of the covenant, the book of the covenant, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So there's sort of a covenant ratification ceremony. Blood is thrown in the two parties, the altar and the people. The, the terms of the covenant are read. The people agree to the covenant, to keep the covenant, right? So this is a covenant ratification ceremony here in chapter 24. Okay, so you have basically the establishing of this covenant between God and the nation of Israel. This is the Old Covenant. Okay, so this is the second part of the book. New Testament repeatedly says that God delivered the law through angels. And so the idea, I think, is the mediation of angels um, with his finger, um, which is what the text says. Uh, But God would have actually mediated his delivering of his law to Moses through the mediation of angels. Okay. All right. So, the third section of the book, which is actually, you know, almost half the book is devoted to the tabernacle. So, this is the part, you know, when you're reading in your devotions, right, and you get to Exodus 24, and you're like, whoa, you know. Well, there's been some boring things, like maybe all those those laws, but even the laws are kind of interesting, you know, as you read them through, and then you get to this section. And it's all about hooks and poles and, you know, curtains and stuff, and it's kind of like, it's very detailed and a little bit repetitious, and it's all, what you're seeing in this section by and large is the description of the Lord telling Israel how to build the tabernacle, with some other things mixed in, as we'll see. So, first of all, in these six chapters here, 25 to 31, you have a detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. And you can see them as you flip through your pages in the scripture, right? The golden lampstand, the altar, the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle. And I'm adding in here, incorporated into this is the priests and their garments and who should be priests, etc. Then you get to chapter 32 and you have the incident of the golden calf. So, so literally... The golden calf incident takes place while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the instructions for for building God's tent, right? He was going to pitch his tent in their midst. He was going to set up a dwelling place for his presence in their midst. 
But while Moses is away, the people commit adultery against God. So they imagine it. This is akin, right? This is akin to a man committing adultery against his wife on their honeymoon, right? I mean, this is what's happened. They've just entered into covenant with God. They're in the process of receiving the instructions for him coming in their midst to live in the tabernacle and he finds that they are already breaking their covenant with him, right? Israel breaks their covenant with God. Now let me just point this out. A lot of people, you know, describe God and the God of the Old Testament is so harsh and so uh, wrathful and angry. The God of the New Testament is merciful and, you know, bears with people. You know, you see Jesus cleansing the leper, healing the sick, welcoming the tax collectors and prostitutes to himself, eating with them. Uh, well, never mind about, you know, the pictures of final judgment or the way he deals with the Pharisees, but just in general, we're going to focus on the fact that it's very positive, whereas the Old Testament is very negative and harsh. But notice, from the very beginning, as you read through the Pentateuch, what you actually see is a God who is incredibly forbearing and patient with his people. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is full of wrath. But when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, you know, he doesn't cast them away. He he covers. He goes out to meet them, to find them, to recover them, and he forgives them, and he and he covers their their nakedness with the skins of an animal, or even with Cain. I was reading that the other day in my devotions. You know, Cain murders brother Abel. God gave him a punishment, but Cain said, "This punishment is so harsh. I'm just going to be killed immediately." And he said, "No," and he put a mark on Cain so they wouldn't be killed. So. Just throughout the Bible, if you have eyes to see it, what you actually see is he's very patient and long-suffering and forbearing and merciful. And here we have his people commit adultery against him on their honeymoon. And what does he do? He, he responds in wrath, of course, but Moses intercedes and he is basically commits to continuing to go with his people through the wilderness to Sinai. So he, he forgives them. And he continues to be with them, to dwell with them, right? So it, this is akin to a man whose wife has committed adultery and he stays with her and he continues to watch over and protect and provide for her, right? So he, so Moses intercedes. Um, the covenant is renewed. This chapter, by the way, 34, is where Moses is, has this encounter with God, right? where he says, show me your glory, and he hides in the cleft of the rock, and the glory of the Lord passes by him, and I I will make my goodness pass before you, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And and then it says, but who does not uh, acquit the, the guilty, right? But punishes as well. And you have this revelation of God's character that provides even within it this tension of mercy and justice at the same time. Um, obviously, there's no tension in God's character, but in our minds, we say, how could he, how could he forgive and not acquit the guilty, right? <laughs> uh, and this is obviously going to set up what we find in the, in the gospel. Okay, so the covenant is renewed, and then at the very end, the rest of the book is devoted to Israel following through under Moses' leadership Uh, with all of these instructions and building the tabernacle. And this actually, this depiction does give you a sense, right? If you were to go out into the Sinai wilderness and find uh, some Bedouin people, you'd probably see a lot of little tents and then 
Perhaps in the middle you'd see a bigger tent, right? And who do you think would be living in the bigger tent? Just any old Bedouin people in the wilderness. The chief or the leader, the king. And that's what we see depicted here, right? (laughs) Except this was a different kind of king. (laughs) He couldn't live in their midst without them being destroyed, right? Because of his holiness. So what has to be? There has to be partitions. There has to be curtains separating out his presence. There has to be sacrifices and priests. Right, right. That's the one from the ESV study Bible, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So the point being that this is a little bit different situation, right? There has to be mediation in order for the sacrificial system has to be in place for God to dwell in the midst of his people. All right. But this is a great blessing, you know, when you think about it. Uh, what's being depicted here in the midst of reading through it and all the monotony and tedium of reading through all the regulations of of the temple being first instructed to be built and then being built, remember what's happening here. You know, I mean, when's the last time you can think of in the old, in the Old Testament in the storyline of the Pentateuch when God lived with His people? When do you have to go back? Sorry. The Garden of Eden, really, right? Right, so this is, something is being recovered here that was lost at the fall. Okay, so now let's talk about the purpose of the, of the book of Exodus in the Pentateuch. And I made this point before, but it's important to recognize that these are covenant documents, right? These were documents that, that were the written, they contained written revelation from God to his old covenant people, delivered through Moses, and what I pointed out in my sermon in Joshua 24 is that actually, we've actually dug up, archaeologists have found documents from the ancient world from about this same time period, the 14th, 15th century, that reflect the, a very similar structure to what we find here. It's come to be called a suzerain vassal structure, uh, a, a, a covenant or a treaty that was made between a great king and, and a powerful kingdom with a lesser kingdom and their king. And they would set up these treaties where the suzerain would enter into this treaty with his vassal. And it would have, you could see multiple documents from different periods of time within this general era in history where you have these similar structures reflected in these suzerain-vassal treaties. And what Old Testament scholars recognized when they compared these other documents, extra-biblical documents, to the Old Covenant is that, whoa, something of these this sort of common suzerain vassal covenant structure is reflected here in these documents that we have in the Pentateuch. And so, let's go through this. In, it was very typical for these documents, these suzerain vassal covenants or treaties, to have a historical prologue. And the purpose of this was to explain the history of the relationship between the parties in the covenant. So, And, and especially here... What we see is all that Yahweh has done for Israel throughout their history. Now, what's interesting is that the covenant documents, this, this history goes back to the very beginning. It tells. So, imagine you're, you're this people, Israel, that were slaves in Egypt. Who is this God that has spoken to us through Moses? He is the one who said, let there be light in the beginning and created the heavens and the earth. How is it that he came to of all the peoples in the world, enter into a covenant with us to take us out of Egypt. And why did he choose us to join us? Oh, it has to do with an ancient promise that he made to a man from Ur of the Chaldee who he, 
who he took out, he called out of paganism and brought him into the land of Canaan and said, see this land, I'm going to give it to your descendants, right? And then the, the history between then and the Exodus is a history that talk, tells the story of how they ended up down in Egypt and how, how they multiplied. You know, when it says that they were fruitful and multiplied, that is traced back to the Abrahamic promise, right? That's what God said would happen. I would give you descendants like the sand of the sea. So it tells this whole story. And in fact, when you look at the documents in Exodus, you see that it's clearly continuing. What we have in Exodus is rooted in what happened in the book of Genesis and and with the Abrahamic promise. So actually, so Genesis 15 if you actually would turn in your Bibles there, Genesis 15, 12 through 16. This is the chapter when God actually entered into a covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. So he'd made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham is starting to doubt that promise. Why? No kids, no kids right? So Genesis 15, God doesn't give him a kid yet, but he confirms the promise by way of a covenant. And in the midst of this covenant, while Abraham is asleep and God through this vision is, is uh, showing him this covenant ceremony where animal pieces are separated and he passes between the pieces, look what it says in verse 13, or verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. You see, God had actually told Abraham ahead of time what was going to happen, that for four hundred years they were going to live in a foreign nation as slaves, and then God was going to rescue them out, and when they came out, they would have great possessions. Well, this is the Exodus, right? Already foretold. Uh, and why? Why would they go down there for four hundred years? Verse sixteen: They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is being patient with the inhabitants of Canaan. Their sin had not yet reached the point where He was going to destroy them completely, right? So this is the background to what you see then the story picked up in the book of Exodus, right? And in Exodus 1, 8, 1, 1 through 8, you see the story of Genesis picked up again, where these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And he lists the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So you see, it's tying in with the end of Genesis and picking up the story, telling what happened after centuries of them living uh, in Egypt after Joseph's death. And then if you, when you If you move over to Exodus 6, you see that it explicitly says that what God was about to do was going to be in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. So you see verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as Sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians that hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant, 
Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you up out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. So you see, it's picking up the Abrahamic promise from Genesis and saying, what I'm about to do is in fulfillment of that. Uh, And then it explains how the Lord delivered them out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. And then, of course, once you get to Exodus 20 through 24, the second portion of the book, what is this? This is the terms of the covenant. So you had the historical prologue of the, of the covenant, laying out the history of how, of this relationship between Yahweh and Israel. How did we get to this point? Lays out everything that God had done for them, his faithfulness, his goodness to them, his choice of them. And then the terms of the covenant, Exodus twenty twenty four, summarized in the Ten Commandments, but expanded on in the, in the rest of the law that's given. And this law... Right, This is going to be the reference point for the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, I just in my Bible reading finished Malachi. And when you get to the very end of Malachi, this is the last book written in the Old Testament before you had hundreds of years of silence and then you had John the Baptist, right? And when you get to Malachi chapter 4, you can see it right there at the very end. It says in verse Malachi 4.4, 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So, all the way through the rest of history, all the way leading up to the Old Testament, this covenant made in Exodus 20-24 shapes, it defines the terms of Israel's relationship with Yahweh. And, and every time they went astray, God was sending them prophets saying, Go back to the terms of the covenant. Keep your covenant with God, right? This covenant that we see in Exodus 20 through 24. And then, of course, the last part is uh, really all about the central blessings of the covenant. The central blessing of the covenant was their relationship with Yahweh, right? He was the great blessing of the covenant. And so what you have in the rest of Exodus is, is in some ways part of the blessings and the curses, right? It, it's, it's, it's describing this most central blessing of the, the new test of the new covenant, which essentially is, I will be your God, you will be my people, right? Or if you want to hear it articulated in Exodus, Exodus 19, this is the great passage that, that describes the blessing of the covenant. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, right? So God establishes this relationship. The great blessing of the covenant is that Israel will be God's special people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart unto him, and he would be their God, and he would dwell right in their midst, as their divine ruler guiding them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And then when they reached the land, he would set up his house, the temple, in their midst, with them in the land, right? And, and, and in a sense, it would be like Eden restored, right? In fact, as we look at the tabernacle and the temple, we see woven in to the, the curtains of the tabernacle are cherubim, Right? Which, if you look in your concordance, the last place that you saw cherubim mentioned was guarding the way into the Garden of Eden, right? And so now here they are again with the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, there's 
images of a garden. There's pomegranates and palm trees and whatnot. And it's like God is saying, something of what was lost in Eden is now I'm, I'm restoring to you. Of course, there's tension, right? Because he is holy and they're sinful. And so there's priests and sacrifices and curtains and walls, right? But, but this is what this is all about. We've looked at the purpose of Exodus in the Pentateuch, right? Exodus is part of these covenant documents. So now let's ask the question, what's the purpose of Exodus, not just in the Pentateuch, where we see that it's, it's part of the covenant documents, you have the historical prologue continued, as well as the actual covenant stipulations and the central blessing of the covenant. But what about in the larger picture of the Bible? Well, First, I want to say it establishes patterns that prefigure and point forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the Exodus itself, what is the Exodus? The Exodus is the great redemptive act of God for his old covenant people. And when you think about it, when the, this Exodus event echoes down through the storyline of Scripture, right? It, it because it prefigures and it ends up pointing us forward to, a, to the greater redemptive event of the new covenant. Exodus is the saving event of the old covenant, and it points forward to a greater saving event that God would accomplish for his new covenant people. Do you see that parallel? And how do you know that? Well, for one thing, the prophets foretold that a second Exodus was going to occur in the future through the Messiah. Let me just show you one place where you can see this in the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 30, you have chapter 30, verse 8 says, And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds. What does that language echo? Slavery. Yeah, bondage and slavery. And where were they slaves before, right? In Egypt. So this is a new exodus, a new deliverance from bondage and slavery. And foreigners shall no more make a servant or slave of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for him. So who's David their king? The Messiah, right? So he's describing an event in the future. Remember the pattern of the exodus. They were slaves. He delivered them out of slavery so that they might go and worship him or serve him. Now he's saying, there's going to come a day when I will burst your bonds apart and deliver you from slavery again, and you shall serve the Lord again, and the Messiah shall be your king, right? So the messianic redemption is being portrayed as like a second and greater exodus. Later on in the book, we see this again in Jeremiah 23, 23:5-8. Behold, the days are coming. Future, right? declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Who's that? The Messiah. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. There's going to be a redemption, a salvation. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And then listen to this. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where, they, where he had driven them, then, then they shall dwell in their own land. You see, he's saying, the days are coming when 
people won't look back to the first exodus. They'll look back to a new saving event. And, and he, he talks about it in terms of them being rescued out of exile, right? And gathered again to his people. So, here again we see the prophets are foretelling a greater event that's connected with the Messiah, will, be conc- will come in his days. It'll be a new salvation that will replace the Exodus as the central redemptive event of the new covenant. And of course, when you get to Jesus, you see that his death is framed against the background of the Exodus, isn't it? How do you know that? How do we, how, why do I say that? Well, it's on the Passover, Good Friday. It happens during the Passover feast, right? In fact, his actual crucifixion corresponded to the day of preparation when they were preparing the Passover lamb, right? And do you think the New Testament writers understood this? Do you think the apostles understood this? Of course. His, the Lord's Supper, when was it instituted? During the Passover meal, right? So it makes perfect sense when in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered, right? So the New Testament understood that Christ was the Messiah and that he had come and that he had established a redemptive event that was actually accomplished against the background of the Exodus, but it was a new Exodus and it was a greater redemption. In fact, Colossians 1, I always look to this because if you read this passage with the Exodus in mind, Israel is in bondage in, a, in the kingdom of Pharaoh and God delivers them up out of bondage and brings them into his own, under his own rule, right? Now listen to Colossians 1. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, that's Exodus language, isn't it? They were brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Messiah. And they were redeemed, purchased through the payment of a price, so that this redemption involved the forgiveness of their sins. You see? So Jesus has come. So the Exodus, in in the book of Exodus, actually established a pattern, Old Covenant, Redemptive event, which pointed forward to something greater to come. New covenant, greater redemptive event through Jesus, right? He is the great Passover lamb sacrifice for the redemption of his people. And also, when you look deeper into the old covenant, you see all kinds of other patterns that were established that pointed forward to Jesus, right? So, God's covenant with Israel anticipated that he would make a new covenant with his people. So when you get to Jeremiah 31 and the announcement of the new covenant, what does it do? Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, which they broke, right? This is a new covenant. So the old covenant provided a pattern, this covenant relationship between God and his people. But there was going to be a new covenant which would be better than that. Also, the Israelites. I mentioned this verse, Exodus 9, 5 through 19, You shall be for me, you know, a treasured possession, a people of my own possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Well, look what Peter says about the church in 1 Peter 2, 9. You know what I'm talking about, right? Now, in the new covenant, that identity marker applied to Israel is applied to the church. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Well, that's Exodus 19, 5 and 6. He's saying, You are God's new covenant people. 
And now the mantle has become yours in Christ. And then also the law that God, the stipulations of the covenant, God took them into covenant and then called them to be holy as he is holy, and then he defined for them what that meant by giving him the old covenant law. Well, in the new covenant, it talks about us being under the law of Christ. And it's very interesting. What do you have in the book of Matthew, chapter 5-7? through seven? Jesus goes up on a mountain. Well, that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he do? He delivers to his people the covenant law, right? So talks, Paul would talk about us being under the law of Christ. Well, Jesus was a lawgiver in Matthew 5-7. through seven. In fact, he would refer to the old covenant law. You have heard it said, right? You shall not murder. I say to you. So there's a relationship with God in the new covenant in which we are under his rule and reign as defined by his commands. Jesus would say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that aspect of the old covenant that we see in Exodus, the giving of the laws, the stipulations of the covenant, is repeated in a greater way as we come under the rule of Christ in the new. And then finally, the tabernacle. This central blessing, the presence of God with his old covenant people through the tabernacle, that is what chapters 25 through 40 are all about. Well, that pointed forward to something, to that same blessing that would be true of the new covenant, but in a greater way, right? Instead of us having a bunch of partitions, you know, God dwells in our midst in some kind of building or tent with all kinds of walls and a mediator in between. In the New Testament, New Covenant, the curtain has been torn, and through Christ, we go right into the holy places. That's Hebrews chapter 10, right? You now have access right into the holy places. In fact, the New Testament calls us a temple. Ephesians 2 describes us as being built up into, as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. There's no more curtains. There's no more walls. He indwells each one of us individually so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us corporately, right? And it's, it's a full communion, right? Through Christ. And no more need for priests and sacrifices because they were just a foreshadowing of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who would make a once-for-all sacrifice. This is Hebrews chapter 10, right? So that, so that all of these aspects that you see described in Exodus 25-40 through 40 were prefiguring and pointing forward to the greater realities, what the writer of Hebrews called the better things that have come now in Christ. The tabernacle was a copy. The priests and the sacrifices could never take away sin. They pointed forward to Jesus, who would bring us who would make us a very dwelling place of God by His Spirit through His sacrifice as our great high priest. Okay, so there's a sense in which, without Exodus in your Bible, how well would you understand all those things that we have in the New Testament? About uh, Jesus, our great high priest, His sacrifice, us as a temple and tabernacle. The Exodus is providing you with the categories that that, that would set you up to appreciate and go, wow, mind blown when you come to the New Testament and you see what it says God has done for us in Christ. Okay, so there's other things that you can say that Exodus does for us. We have an incredible picture of God's character in Exodus 34. We have clear description of human depravity. 
you have the Ten Commandments, which become an enduring revelation of God's own standards of righteousness. And you have that pattern of indicative and imperative, right? God didn't say to Israel, you can be my people if you will keep my law. Then I will take you into covenant with me. No, he says, he, he delivers them. He enters into covenant with them. And then he says, now because of what I've done for you, be holy. And that's the same pattern that we see in the new covenant, isn't it? This is what I've done for you. Now, therefore, obey my commands, right? Now, the last thing I want to say is, read Leviticus. I should have been saying this each time. If you want to really prepare for the next class, read the books, the next book before the class, right? That will set you up. I should have been saying, read Exodus, read Genesis, but read Leviticus this week. You know, go through it. Try to soak it in. Prepare your heart so that next week when we come to Leviticus, you'll be ready. And, you know, I'm just talking about that, like, read Leviticus, yes, you know. But uh, you're going to be like, read Leviticus? Oh, my goodness. Okay. But it's, it's good. It's good, okay? It will, it, will, it will mold and shape you and prepare you for our class. So let's, let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing upon our time. Father, thank you for the time we've spent in the book of Exodus. We pray that in this class you will have really grounded us in a basic understanding of this book so that next time that we read through it, or as we continue to read through it again and again in our, in our Bible reading, as we study parts of it or the whole of it, that we would just grow in our depth of understanding of what it's all about, what its main, what's in it and what its point, what its message is and what its place in the Bible is, so that we could grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, who we know is the ultimate referent toward which Exodus was pointing us. And we pray that even as we understand Exodus better, it will help us to understand the storyline of the Bible better and to appreciate more fully the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So renew our minds and transform us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.